And let me ask you, if you will, please to open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 10 as we return to our study in the Gospel according to Mark. This morning we come to Mark chapter 10, a passage about the subject of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. This morning we'll look at Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 12. Please follow along with me as I read. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. And so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray now that as we approach the holy ground of your word, that you would help us. Help us to have insight. Help us to have understanding. Help us to see your character put on display in your law. Help us to recognize that When your word is twisted, as the Pharisees so often did, help us, Lord, to never look for allowances, but to always seek to find what is your will for us. We pray, Lord, that as we approach the difficult subject of divorce and remarriage, that you would give us understanding, that you would give us grace, that you would remind us that you forgive sin. That you would remind us that you're the friend of sinners. And yet also, Lord, that you would remind us that you see marriage as a serious commitment. We again ask that you would bless the marriages here already in existence, bless the future marriages that will be Bless those who are single and will, will never know what marriage is like, but will give themselves fully to you throughout this life. Bless our understanding of your word so that we would bear fruit. We believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Divorce. The very word itself carries with it a certain sting. Not just because of what it is and what it does, but also because of how common it is. I would venture to say that there's most likely not a single person here in this room today who has not been affected in some way by divorce, whether your own or someone that you've known. It's certainly a sensitive topic, a serious topic. It's a topic that the Lord has not left us without guidance on. And yet it's a topic that needs to be treaded upon lightly. You'll notice that when Jesus takes up this topic, in this particular passage, a few things are necessary for us to 
point out. First of all, he does not say everything that the Bible has to say about the topic. And therefore, we cannot base an entire biblical theology on Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 12. I had considered the possibility of, of doing that, giving us a biblical framework to think about that, but I decided that it wasn't the time for that. I wanted to stay within Mark's intention as the Holy Spirit wanted Mark to communicate this particular message. And perhaps another time we can refer to the other passages, passages like Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 19, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, places where the subject of marriage, divorce, and even remarriage, the possibility of remarriage after divorce, is taken up. But even then, in those passages, you'll find there is disagreement against good, well-intentioned Christians. So we need to understand that, first of all, Jesus does not say everything that there is to say about the subject of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And so I don't intend to say everything that there is to say about the, the subject itself. Certainly, if you would have any questions, I'd be happy to talk with you about that be happy to refer to you to some resources. There are all kinds of excellent resources out there that would lay out the various positions that good, well-intentioned Christians take on the subject of divorce and remarriage. So we need to understand that. And then also we need to understand that in the context, Jesus is not talking to humble, truth-seeking people. He's talking to hard-hearted, self-righteous wolves in the Pharisees. And so when he does that, as you are familiar with the Gospels, he takes a certain stance and a certain tone. At this point in Jesus' ministry, he is absolutely done tolerating the Pharisees. And so Jesus takes a hard stance, and yet at the very same time, we need to also understand that God does see marriage, divorce, and remarriage as a serious subject. He does have a will perfectly laid out for us in his word. And yet we live in a fallen world where we don't always follow God's will perfectly. There are countless scenarios, scenarios that we could probably all lay out upon which every situation needs to be taken on its own merits. God's word gives us principles that guide us in our thinking, but the reality is there are certain circumstances and certain scenarios that divorce is not commanded, but divorce is permitted. For instance, This passage does not give the exception clause that Matthew 19 does when Matthew shares the very same story that divorce seems to be permissible by Jesus when a spouse commits sexual immorality. It seems, though some would disagree, that Jesus would also permit remarriage in that case when a spouse commits sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 permits a Christian spouse to divorce a non-Christian spouse who has abandoned him or her. And it seems, though some would disagree, that Paul gives grounds for that person also to be able to remarry. I say that to say, as you know, life in a fallen world is complicated. And that we have to be careful when we apply biblical wisdom and biblical principles to life in a fallen world. So not everything could be said. Every situation should be considered upon its own merits. There is never a sort of copy-paste answer that we can give to every scenario. Life is far too nuanced, far too fallen for that. So we need to understand that every situation should be examined on its own merits But we also need to understand from this particular passage that it is absolutely the will of God that Jesus' disciples understand that God's intention is that marriage should be between one man and one woman who are actually 
biologically, creationally, a man and a woman, and that that marriage changes the relationship between father and, uh, and son and mother and daughter and vice versa, and rather than extends that family unit, begins its own new family unit. Does not eradicate the father and mother relationship to the son or daughter, but it alters it, certainly. And not only that, but it is also intended by God to be a lifetime commitment in sickness and in health till death do you part. Yet at the very same time, it is important for us to remember that Jesus forgives sinners. So if you feel the, the heat of the conviction of the Holy Spirit, I want you to remember that Jesus has paid for the sins of his people. That Jesus forgives those who confess their sin and he cleanses them of all unrighteousness so that their lives are no longer marked by their mistakes and by their sins, but their lives are marked by the perfection of Jesus Christ as we believe in him. In this passage, what we see between the Pharisees and Jesus is the clash between man's self-centered approach to marriage and God's self-denying approach to marriage. You remember that Jesus has already said, he's already laid out the terms of discipleship. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Truly, can there be any other higher human relationship to live out that call of self-denial than the only relationship that the Bible describes as a one-flesh union? Children may come from their mother, but marriage is the only relationship that God describes as a one-flesh union. And so marriage is the, the way, or is, the, is the platform, the environment for disciples of Jesus Christ to most clearly illustrate their willingness to obey the will of God in self-denial and love for one another. So we see that clash between self-centered, the, the self-centered approach that the Pharisees have and the self-denying approach that God intends We need to understand that disciples of Jesus must know and obey God's will for marriage in order to put the gospel on display in marriage. And this is exactly what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. So as we walk through this passage then, I considered giving us various principles to understand as as a framework for marriage, but I thought maybe a different way would be better. What I want to do instead is contrast the view of the Pharisees and the view of Jesus. So first of all, in verses 1 to 5 then, we see man's way, the self-centered perspective on marriage, or the self-centered approach on marriage. In verses 1 to 5, verse 1 lays out the setting for us. Jesus has left the northern territory of Galilee, and he's back now into the southern region of Judea. Mark says he left there in Capernaum, and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. It's business as usual in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Everywhere he goes, he draws a crowd But you'll notice that this crowd is even bigger, it seems, than any other crowd. Mark doesn't say, and the crowd gathered, or a crowd gathered, as he usually does in Mark, but he makes it plural crowds. Crowds gathered to him. And within that crowd, as Jesus taught, were his arch nemesis, the Pharisees. The already condemned in their self-righteousness men who elevated their traditions over the word of God and who already back in chapter 3 were seeking a way to destroy Jesus. It seems that this is the perfect storm and the Pharisees were waiting for this setup 
Perhaps they had planned this question that they are going to ask him, a question laid out in verse two, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Perhaps they had already thought about this scenario. Why do they ask the question? Well, it wouldn't have been immediately apparent to the disciples, though it was immediately apparent to Jesus, but Mark peels back the veil for us and tells us that the Pharisees' intention was not to get an honest answer to the question, but it was to test Jesus. And you'll remember already, back in chapter 6, what happened to John the Baptist. He was forcefully removed of his head. Do you remember why? Because he was preaching a message against the so-called King Herod and against his unlawful wife, Herodias, because Herod had divorced his wife and unlawfully married his brother's wife, Herodias. And so back in Mark chapter 6, verses 7 to 19, Mark says, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. Herodias laid a trap for John and it worked. Now we fast forward into the life and ministry of Jesus. He's been up north, but now he's back south in the territory where King Herod is sort of in charge. And it seems that what the Pharisees want to do is set Jesus up for the very same fate. We know that if we bring up the subject of marriage and divorce, it's going to strike a nerve once again with Herodias. And we know that Herod will do anything that Herodias tells him to do. And so if we can just get Jesus to make the same mistake that John the Baptist did, then maybe he will remove Jesus of his head just like he did John of his. And so this whole thing is a setup from the very beginning. This isn't the first time that Jesus has been tested throughout his ministry. In fact, back in chapter 8, the Pharisees had tested him by seeking from him signs. Jesus simply refused and wiped the dust off of himself and moved on. But that wasn't the first time that Jesus had been tested in his ministry. Do you remember who it was that first tested Jesus? Satan. See, Mark wants us to understand that what the Pharisees are doing is the very same thing Satan himself attempted to do. That their question is not innocent. It is demonic. That their intention is not humble. It is satanic. It is to assault the Son of Man, to trip him up, to eradicate him, just as they had sought to do back in chapter 3, verse 6. You remember the day when Jesus went to the synagogue? And there was a man there with a withered hand. The man with the withered hand left that day with a brand new hand. And the Pharisees were mad. Not just mad, they were fighting mad. And so chapter 3, verse 6 says, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, seeking how to destroy him. It's no coincidence that Jesus is back in the territory of the Herodians and now the Pharisees come to him to try to set him up to get him to meet the same fate as John the Baptist. As I mentioned already, it's helpful for us to keep in mind the audience that Jesus is talking to here. He's not talking to well-intentioned Christians who have genuine questions about divorce and remarriage. He's talking to self-righteous, hard-hearted wolves who make it their habit to twist the scriptures. 
And so they ask him the question. But I want you to notice what the question reflects. Notice they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife in verse 2? Why would they ask that? The question reflects the culture in which they lived. In fact, it had reflected Jewish culture ever since the days of Moses. Wouldn't a better question have been, how does God want us to live in marriage? You see what the Pharisees are doing here? They're looking for loopholes. How do we get out of this and still have a Bible verse to slap on it in order to justify ourselves? That's what they're doing. That's what the legalist always does. That's what the self-righteous faker always does. How can we justify our behavior with Scripture? It's the drunk who says, well, Jesus drank wine. It's the pothead who says, it grows naturally. Must be good. It's the unmarried couple who wants to push the line to see how far they can get before actually committing sexual immorality. And it's the reflection, not of a humble heart, but the reflection of a hard heart. Looking for loopholes will always get you into trouble. Looking for loopholes reflects an attitude that is self-centered and not self-denying. And Jesus has already made it crystal clear in the Gospel of Mark that if you want to follow him, what you must do is deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. But friends, how often, how often is the grace of God used as a license to sin? How often does someone say, or perhaps you say, I know God doesn't want me to, but Jesus forgives. You see, when we live that way, when we turn grace into a license for sin, then it turns out, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 6, we don't really understand grace in the first place. Paul says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? It's an impossibility, he says. The one who loves Jesus Christ does not and cannot also simultaneously love his or her sin. And so when grace invades your heart, it changes you, it ravages your heart, it, it, it completely transforms you into what the Bible calls a new creation in Christ. And it's not as though you won't wrestle with temptation, but you will put down that temptation with the greater gift of Jesus. You will see the beauty and the majesty and the glory of Jesus as so much better than the momentary attraction of your sin. The Pharisees looked for loopholes and the sad reality is that there are many today who would call themselves Christians who do the very same thing. We all know that there are some times when a lawyer could be helpful to find certain loopholes, perhaps in order to not pay so many taxes or whatever the situation might be. But we also know at the very same time that there are a whole lot of people, a whole lot of people who make a whole lot of money on looking for loopholes for 
organizations such as cartels. Well, if you just hide your money over here, and if you just do these couple of things, then legally they can't really touch you. Beware looking for loopholes. The Christian does not look for loopholes. The Christian does not ask themselves, how can I get out of this? But the Christian always asks themselves, how does God want me to live in this? And so the culture of the day for the Pharisees was, what's the quickest and easiest way to get out of marriage? And it seems from history that it was even easier for them to get out of marriage than it is for us today. And so the culture had pervaded the religion so much so that it was just common for people to think about that very question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus, I don't like her anymore. What can I do to get rid of her and not bring shame upon myself? But you'll notice there is absolutely zero concern for the wife in that. Which is exactly why Jesus roots his answer not in Mosaic law, but in creation itself. And so the Pharisees represent this self fulfillment desire, this, this self pleasing desire. And Jesus counters their question with a question of his own. Notice verse 3 He answered them, What did Moses command you? a good question to ask a Pharisee. You guys love Moses so much. What did Moses command you? See, Jesus knows their game and he's meeting them on their territory in order to blow up their territory completely. Jesus asked us the question, what does Moses command you? And verse four says, they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Notice Jesus asks what Moses commands you, and what do they say? Moses allowed us to do this. You see, they're playing the game right back. They weren't really interested in the commands that anyone had given them. What they were interested in was figuring out how far they could go and still use the Bible as an excuse for their behavior. Can I tell you, that's what every heretic does. That's what every false teacher does. That's what every false disciple does. And so we we must not be so naive to think that just because someone can use scripture, that they must therefore be a godly person. What does Paul say Satan disguises himself as? An angel of light. What did Satan try to do when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness? Mark doesn't tell us, but Matthew does. He used the Bible. Heretics throughout the centuries, throughout church history, have almost always used the Bible but they twist it to their own destruction, Jude says. So we have to be careful that we know our Bibles well and know not just what the Bible says on its face, but get to the the deeper reality of what the will of God is in his law. That it's not just a bunch of rules, but it's a reflection of the character of God. That I don't know my Bible just to know stuff I know my Bible to know God. They had no idea that this was the very self-revelation of God. They thought it was their ladder to climb to heaven. Jesus says to them in John, you search the scriptures thinking that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that testify about me. Don't be duped by someone just because they know the Bible. Jesus, of course, was not duped by someone who knew their Bible. The the passage that they 
quote is from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. And I think it might be helpful for us, if you'd like, to turn there briefly. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 24 is where not just the Pharisees quoted, but since the days of Moses in the people of Israel, it was where the hot debate centered. One conservative, by the way, there were still conservative and liberal schools even back then. It's nothing new. The conservative school said that divorce could only happen if a wife committed sexual immorality. It didn't allow for the man, uh, for the wife to divorce the man who committed sexual immorality, just a man to divorce his wife. And the liberal school said that a husband could divorce his wife even if she did something as simple and as bothersome to him as burning dinner. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. Listen to this and think about that question that Jesus asked. What does Moses command? And they say, well, Moses allows this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and that's the word that the debate centered on. What does indecency mean? And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now notice, they based their understanding of their allowance for divorce on that passage. But I ask you, does that passage allow for divorce? Or does that passage give the guidelines for when a sinful man divorces his wife? You see, it's a concession of God, not a command of God. The problem was men were divorcing their wives left and right just because they didn't like her anymore. And in that culture, most especially, a woman who was divorced was just cast to the side. And maybe someone else would come and marry her, or maybe not. And so Moses said, okay, you bunch of deadbeats, if this is how you're going to treat your wife, then I'm going to put a cap on this. I'm going to limit this because this is getting out of hand. A wife has dignity just as the husband does. And so this is designed to serve the, the purposes of marriage to limit divorce and to give some dignity to the wife. It's not intended to be an allowance for divorce. But when you approach the scriptures from the perspective that the Pharisees did, how far can we get to obeying God and yet still doing whatever we want? Then you can take all these if-then, if-then, if-then statements and twist them. And if you're the teachers of Israel, well, then you can make it say whatever you want it to say. Notice Deuteronomy 24 is a description of what was happening. It's not a prescription of what should be done. And so this was absolutely not a command in any way. It was, in fact, a concession. As God looked down upon the sinfulness of man, most clearly displayed in the, in the desire of men who had taken wives to be a helper, as Genesis says, to, to care for them and to love them. Men had taken wives and they had decided that rather than treat her like a human being, they were going to treat her like a, I don't even want to say it, an object that they didn't want anymore. I wish I would have been there and I would have liked to have known if you know, Revelation, when Jesus comes back, he's got fire in his eyes. 
I would have loved to have known if there was just a little flash of fire in that moment. I'm not sure there's anything much more despicable than a man who abandoned his wife. So back to Mark chapter 10. They cite that passage, but the reality is that that passage does not, is not intended to do what they were using it for for centuries. And so then Jesus answers them in verse 5. He says to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. So, so why did Moses write Deuteronomy chapter 24 verses 1 to 4? Because the hardness of men's hearts was so pervasive that something had to be done to cap its destruction. But notice who Jesus says has the hard hearts. He's referring to the wicked generation of Israel, but notice Jesus turns it directly at the Pharisees because of your hardness of heart. He wrote you this commandment. Why? Because the Pharisees are just a carbon copy of the wicked Israelites who rebelled against God in the wilderness. So because of the sinfulness of mankind, God allowed there to be divorce. Anytime there is divorce, hear me clearly and I'll explain this. Anytime there is divorce, it is a reflection of sin. At the same time, it is possible for there to be an innocent party in a divorce who does not sin. Again, 1 Corinthians 7 says, if a believing spouse is abandoned by an unbelieving spouse and the unbelieving spouse simply refuses to come back, simply refuses to contribute what they're supposed to contribute in the marriage, God, God says through Paul, that's a, a case where they can get a divorce. Jesus says, even in Matthew 19, when Matthew records this very conversation, Jesus adds what's called the exception clause of if a spouse commits sexual immorality, then divorce is permissible. But the reality is, even if there is an innocent, unsinful spouse, the other spouse is in sin. Go back to the case of the believing believing spouse who's been abandoned by an unbelieving spouse. Abandonment is a sin. Go back to the case of the spouse who has been cheated on in some way through sexual immorality. That spouse who was cheated on didn't sin, at least in that moment, but the one who committed sexual immorality most certainly did sin. Now, it would be the ultimate will of God that both of those parties humble themselves, reflect the gospel, and work to reconcile that relationship. But the sad truth and the hard reality of living in a fallen world is that it doesn't always happen. So the Pharisees reflect for us man's way, the self-centered perspective on marriage. So as we, as we wrap up this particular section, as we, as we conclude looking at man's way and the self-centered approach, the idea that marriage is all about me and you're supposed to make me happy, I want to conclude with this statement and I'll conclude with uh, the, second, uh, the second perspective as well. So here's the conclusion as we look at man's way of seeing marriage. Man's way says that marriage is for self-fulfillment and can therefore end whenever it stops accomplishing this purpose. Man's way says that marriage is for self-fulfillment and can therefore end whenever it stops accomplishing this purpose. If I take the approach that what I'm looking for is someone who will make me happy, someone who will fulfill me, someone who will honor me and please me and serve me and be all about me, then when that person wises up and realizes I'm just a self-centered jerk, 
and they stop fulfilling me, then if I have that perspective, what I'm going to do in that particular situation is say, well, this isn't working for me anymore. I found someone else. And wouldn't you know it, it was, it was just meant to be. That's the self-centered perspective on marriage. But then as Jesus continues his answer, in verses 6 to 12, he lays out what God's will is, the self-denying perspective on marriage. We've seen the man's way, the self-fulfillment, the self-centered approach or perspective on marriage. And now as Jesus teaches them, not from Moses's law, but from creation account itself, as Jesus teaches them about what God's intention for marriage is, he lays out God's will. And a disciple of Jesus Christ must follow this self-denying way to marriage. Beginning in verse 6, Jesus' answer continues. He says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. You see, they go back to the intricacies, the details of the Mosaic law. But Jesus goes back to the will of the triune God in creation itself. Jesus says, no, no, you don't understand. There's something that has come before Moses wrote you that concession. It's called creation. So he lays out God's will for marriage and roots it in creation, which is why it cannot be changed. Culture cannot change creation. This is why you cannot have, for instance, 1 Timothy 2 and 3, women who teach men in the church. You can't have women pastors and women preachers who preach to men. Because there in 1 Timothy 2, Paul roots his very argument of women not being allowed to teach or exercise authority over a man in the church in creation itself. Why can the, well, whatever you want to call it nowadays, any agenda that assaults marriage, why can it not change the definition of marriage? Because it's rooted in creation. You didn't make it, you don't own it, you don't get to change it, is the idea. And so Jesus roots it in creation, and he shows us, first of all, that, that God's will is rooted in creation, but then also that God's will is that marriage can only be between a man and a woman. He quotes Genesis 1.27. God made them male and female. Seems to be a funny thing to say, right? They, they asked about divorce. Jesus says, no, let me take it all the way back. God made you male and he made you female. The only legitimate marriage in the eyes of God and therefore the only legitimate marriage is between a man and a woman. Now, most likely that's something that we know. But here's the reality we have to make sure we never stop saying that. Because what happens when we make assumptions? Our children may not make the same assumptions. And our grandchildren may not make the same assumptions. And so we have to continually say, no, this is rooted in the will of God in creation itself. And we have to just continually and simply say, I'm sorry, but a man and a man is not a marriage doesn't matter if our laws say it is. It's not. And so he, he roots it in that. He, he says that the will of God is only between a man and a woman in marriage. And then he says also in verse 7 that God's will is that marriage creates a new family unit. He says in light of being made male and female, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. This most likely signifies male headship, but the reality is it's not just the man who leaves his father and mother, it's also the woman who leaves her father and mother. Which is a, a good 
perhaps slightly provoking way for a young couple to have biblical grounds for their parents not to meddle in their business. We all know what it's like when parents get a little too involved, right? And yet we all know what it's like when parents can, can let go, can realize that those arrows in their quiver are not meant to stay in their quiver. They're meant to be shot out into the world for the glory of God. And it's beautiful, isn't it? When you can see that family, that broader family cohesion between a father and mother and their now married son or daughter. Many of you portray this. It's beautiful. That's God's will. It doesn't, it doesn't completely sever those ties, but it absolutely changes those ties. Mom and dad don't have authority like they did once before. But that's why mom and dad must teach son or daughter what to look for and what to be in a spouse. And so it makes a new family unit. Then God's will is that marriage is to be the closest human relationship in verse 8. He says they, they leave father and mother, they hold fast together, and the two shall become one flesh. And just as I've already said, this is the only human relationship that God describes as a one flesh relationship. Isn't that amazing? I mean, a baby is entirely dependent on mom and dad initially at conception, and then mom takes over completely and is entirely dependent on mom throughout the process of growth in the womb. And yet, God doesn't call that a one flesh relationship. Now, to be clear, it does not diminish the, the value and the worth and the beauty of that. But it's not put on the same level as marriage. Why? Ephesians 5 tells us. Because marriage is a picture of the union between Christ and his bride. And so it's the closest human relationship. And then in verse 9, we learn that God's will is that marriage should never be separated by man. Jesus says in conclusion, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Which is exactly what the Pharisees were trying to figure out a way to do and be justified, right? Hey, Jesus, tell us how we can get out of this marriage. Jesus says, no, 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 that's not the point. The point is that you don't try to separate what God has united together in a one flesh union. And then as, the, as the, the scenario goes on, we have what we often have in the Gospel of Mark, continued teaching from Jesus in a house. Verse 10 says, and in the house, the disciples asked him about this matter because they were just as confused as the Pharisees because they were products of their cultural environment as well. What Jesus was saying is perfectly normal to us, but what he was saying was totally radical to them. Verse 11, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Jesus seems to be reflecting the reality of the one flesh union and he seems to be talking about a sinful divorce though he doesn't clarify that but I think when we add the light of other passages what he's talking about is a sinful divorce not a divorce that would be because a spouse was abandoned a believing spouse was abandoned or there was sexual immorality though once again it would be God's best intention for the spouses to be able to reconcile as a beautiful picture of the way that God and his, that Christ and his church have been reconciled. So he's talking about if you tear apart that one flesh union and then you try to become a one flesh union with another man or another woman, then you're cheating on that one who you were in a one flesh union in the first place. And notice that he doesn't say simply commits adultery, but he, he totally flips it on its head for them. He says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. That was totally foreign to them. 
because they had such little value for women because they didn't understand creation. They didn't understand that being made in the image of God is what gives a human being, man or woman, inherent value, inherent dignity, inherent worth. And that every image bearer should be treated accordingly. They thought wives were a piece of property that could be discarded anytime they wanted. And Jesus says, no, not only do you commit adultery, but you commit adultery against her. Matthew tells us about the disciples' response, and they say to him simply, well, if that's the case, it's better just to not be married. And then Jesus lays out some justification for why you ought to consider singleness. That's a hard truth to swallow, isn't it? Jesus wants his disciples, contrary to the the laxed view that the Pharisees had, he wants his disciples to understand that marriage is a sober reality and a serious matter. Because he wants you to understand that if you're in marriage, you need to think a certain way about it. And he wants you to understand that if you plan to be married, you need to think a certain way about it. But I think that Jesus would also want those of you who have ever been divorced to understand that there's forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ. In Mark chapter 3, verse 28... Jesus makes this crystal clear. He doesn't bring up the subject of divorce, but this is what he says. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. And then he goes on to explain that the only thing that will not be forgiven is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's a hard truth that Jesus lays out about marriage, but it's a gracious reality that Jesus forgives those who confess their sin. And not only does he forgive them, but he cleanses them of all unrighteousness. I said that we will not discuss every matter concerning divorce and remarriage. I've touched on a few of those already, but I want you to know that if, you, if you've got this question in your mind about how you should think about divorce, you should, you should certainly continue to explore that question, but I want you to know that the one who is divorced can always, always have forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And so as a, as a closing exhortation then, I, I want to speak to the different scenarios that would be here. First of all, to those who are not married. Please see marriage for the serious reality that it is. But don't let it scare you. Because it's the best thing ever. It is such a gift when you have a God-honoring marriage. But know what the will of God is for your life and know then how to make a right choice in light of the will of God and not in light of your lusts and attractions and hormones and those types of things. Proverbs 31.30 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. That's speaking of the the Proverbs 31 woman, the ideal woman. But the reality is, ladies, you want to look for the very same thing in a man. A man who fears the Lord. Because the reality is, surprise, surprise, what is at one point attractive physically gets older. And certainly the other spouse thinks they're still attractive, but the reality is he ain't going to always look like that. What used to be biceps is going to probably turn into a pot belly one day. Case in point. And so there's something better to look for than what the eye can see. Character. Look for character. 
to those who are married, don't let your marriage just be a partnership in which you coexist in order to accomplish the normal duties of the day. It's so much better than that. Do everything you can to cultivate a healthy, godly, and enjoyable marriage. While man's way might look for self-fulfillment in marriage, the reality is that God's way is the only real way that actually does bring self-fulfillment. The way that God intends. God doesn't want you to be miserable in marriage. He wants you to delight in the wife of your youth, the Proverbs say. He wants you to enjoy every moment of it. And when we obey God as husbands and when we obey God as wives, that creates a beautiful and enjoyable union that you can never experience anywhere else. So do everything you can not to settle for, eh. Husbands, take lead. Make sure you and your wife have time together. I don't know how many times I heard the warning given to me as I was getting married. Make sure that when you have kids, you make time for each other. Because if not, in about 18 to 20 years or so, when all the kids are gone, you're going to look over and realize you don't really even know that person anymore. Because for the entire time that the kids were in your house, all you did was focus your attention on them. So do everything you can to cultivate a God-honoring, enjoyable marriage. And then to those who are divorced, it's entirely possible that you are in this position because the sin of your former spouse, that you are completely innocent and have no need to ask for forgiveness. Yet it is entirely possible at the very same time that you are in the position you're in because of your own sin. There is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. I want you to remember that Jesus forgives any sin that we confess to him. And if you have been sinned against, I want you to remember that Jesus is the great healer. He will work on that wound in this life and he will finally heal it in the next life. I want you to know that you have a husband waiting for you. And according to Revelation 19, you will be adorned in the beautiful garments of righteousness to be presented to him and to enjoy him forever. You might have to check a box every once in a while that says divorced. But if you're in Christ, that is not your identity. You're in Christ. That's your identity. When God wanted to design a human relationship that would illustrate his love for his very own bride, he took a man and he took a woman. He separated them from their father and mother and he united them together as one flesh. To the husband, he said, love her just like Christ loves the church. And to the wife, he said, Submit to him just like the church submits to me. It's within that context of marriage between a Christian man and a Christian woman that the world gets to see a living picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It won't be perfect. But when we work to reconcile our, our sins and our grievances, when we work to reconcile our problems, when we, we work through our quarrels, we show the world that Jesus makes it possible to solve any problem when we are entirely dependent upon him. And this, my friends, is the beauty of marriage and the beauty of the gospel. May God give us the grace to show this reality. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us in giving us the Lord Jesus Christ. Even those of us who are men gladly, joyfully take him as the bridegroom. Once again, we ask your blessing 
on the marriages here, the future marriages here. We ask your blessing on anyone who has uh, had to endure the difficulty of divorce. We ask your blessing on your people, Lord, that your love would reign in our hearts and exude from us so that the world would see you are alive. We pray this then in Jesus' name. Amen.